0: You know, we're in a series of messages uh, focused on the vision of our church this fall, and uh, uh, the three words that we use a lot around here are worship, connect, serve. You may have heard us many times say those things, they're out there on the, on the wall, and it's our intention here at Grace, just so you know, we say it regularly, but we just want you to know that these are three things that we really encourage constant growth in our area, in, in our journeys with Jesus individually, but also corporately. Are we... Advancing in loving God through worship and understanding worship, a lifestyle of worship, what it is. Are we living in community, loving one another? Are we a part of a connect group or a a community of believers somewhere where we're able to not only be loved, but love and to join together and journey together as we serve the kingdom with our skills and our gifts that He's given to us? And, And thirdly, serve. Are we loving our community? Are we using the gifts and the callings that God has put in each of our hearts to. Serve the needs of our community for the expression of the gospel in our community. And uh, that's just something we want to keep before you. And today we're going to talk about worship. And uh, when I say that word, no doubt across the congregation, many of you have this idea of what that is, what it ought to be, what it maybe isn't, what it should be. I mean, we use the word worship a lot in the church today, but. Sometimes I have to ask, do we really have this grasp, this good, not only theology, but understanding and practice of what worship is? Because it's not necessarily something we do as much as it is a function of who we are in Christ. and Now his life just kind of germinates in us and is expressing itself back to him in response to his wonderful grace for us. As we approach the subject today, I thought I would just give you, I don't know, I guess nine quotes from famous authors and Maybe one of them just kind of hits you somewhere, maybe opens up something fresh and new to you today, today. Number one, Jerry Kearns' author writes this, the whole person with all his senses, with both mind and body, everything, needs to be involved in genuine worship. A.W. Tozer writes, without worship we go about miserable. <laughs> kind of like that one. Without worship we go about miserable. C.S. Lewis writes this, we only learn to behave ourselves in the presence of God. (laughs) I mean, how many of you try to behave yourself outside of the presence of God? It doesn't work very well. Jack Hayford writes this, worship changes the worshiper into the image of the one worshipped. Warren Wiersbe, worship is the believer's response of all that they are, mind, emotions, will, yes, even their body, to what God is and says, and does. Paul David Tripp writes this. He says, corporate worship is a regular, gracious reminder that it's not about you. Don't you like that? How he is so kind and tempered and then says it's not about you? (laughs) Corporate worship is a regular, gracious reminder that it's not about you. You've been born into a life that is a celebration of another. John Bunyan, famous author, it's better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. Tim Hughes, a praise and worship leader of our day, writes many songs that you would know and find familiar. Songs of worship arise from a life of worship. And finally, Paul Bilheimer, surely that which occupies the total time and energies of heaven must be, fitting, must be a fitting pattern for earth. Huh. Are we going to worship in heaven? There's a lot that the church does now that we're not going to do in heaven, right? But worship, oh yeah. You know, we sang the psalm earlier, Psalm 42, we had the video about it. I want to read those first two verses and just capture this essence of the heart of a worshiper. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. The visual picture couldn't be more striking. The thirsty deer just must have access to the brooks, to the water source. The worshiper has one thing on his mind, the the, the presence of God, the reality of the closeness of God in their life, the living God. Psalm 63 says, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My body, it says, yearns for you. And I hope we catch the imagery of the passages. It's a lover who is fully taken, fully smitten with the object of their affection. It's a longing for more. I just, um, I live in the presence of the Holy God. I seek after the presence of the Holy God. And when I'm satisfied in the presence of the Holy God, what does it make me want? It makes me want more of the Holy God. As the heart is satisfied, it just continually wants more. It never gets to the place where, okay, I've had my fill of worship now. (laughs) I think I'll move on to something else. No. Worship is this living in the very presence and essence of who he is in us. It's the abiding presence of God through his spirit in us. It's being close to him. It's staying there. It's desiring that and that alone. And as we think about this, I want us to look at a story from the life of Jesus that is, I guess you could argue about this, but it may be the best expression of worship, the heart of worship in the New Testament. It's found over in Luke 7. Maybe a familiar story to you. There are similar stories that occur in the other Gospels, but are different scenes. Here we are in Luke 7. I'm going to read from 36 to the end of the chapter. I want you to get a full grasp of the story and what's going on here. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him, Jesus, to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. How many of you associate with that? (laughs) There was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. How would you have reacted? You see, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, perhaps muttering under his breath, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus answers him. Simon, I have something to say to you. (laughs) Jesus ever had those words for you? Dave, I have something to say to you. He replied, well, say it, teacher. It's kind of like game on. Jesus tells him a story. A money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to her, say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. Then He said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. Mercy, grace. Yet those who were reclining at the table with Him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, as I unpack that in my own life, and begin to study that story, the scene. This question keeps coming up. And it's the question that I kind of stem this message from today. Which am I most like? The Pharisee or the woman? In my worship, in my living before Christ... In my understanding of Him, in my understanding of God, am I more like the woman or the Pharisee? You see, we see this often in the teachings of Jesus, these two ways of finding justification in life. One is to cast ourselves wholly upon the the grace of Christ, and the other is a moralistic kind of religious, good-living kind of justification. This justification is solely dependent upon the shed blood of Christ on the cross This justification is taking some kind of merit in my ability to act in a moral, good way. And Jesus calls them out over and over. We see it in the prodigal son. Who is the party for? The party's for the repentant, sinful brother. And what about the other brother? Does he go into the party? No, he disqualifies himself. I will not go into the party because your grace for my brother is offensive to me. It's just not right. Am I more like the prodigal? Willing to admit my need, my sinfulness? Or do I feel like I have some merit, some standing based upon my righteous routine, perhaps? I want us to draw some conclusions from the life of the woman here. The first point I would make here is the woman knows the love of Jesus is what qualifies her. We don't have the backstory to the scene. We don't know where this woman encountered Jesus along her journey, but no doubt she did. There was something about Him that spoke to her, that accepted her, that loved her in spite of what she knew she was. There was a draw that He had for her. Does she know she's a sinner? Do you think? Yeah. She knows that she has a socially despicable past. And yet she's encountered Jesus in some way that just says, I've got to be with him. I've got to show him how I feel about him. She knows that she has nothing of her own to offer. She has no merit that qualifies her to be in this environment, except for the love that he has shown for her. Well, the Pharisee, he sees Jesus as a peer. Have you ever seen Jesus as a peer? <laughs> he sees Jesus as a peer, and he sees, he's heard him talk out in the, in the, in the crowds, and he's thought, I'm going to have that guy over, and I'm going to kind of encounter a debate with him, and ha, I'm going to put him in his place we kind of know that there's a relational one-upsmanship here because why because we know he doesn't uh, anoint his head with uh with with water we know he doesn't wash his feet we know he doesn't give him the ceremonial greeting of a kiss what you would do with an honored guest he purposely doesn't do because he is a in his mind a moral superior a more correct teacher theological concerns i mean the pharisee would be the person that's evaluating the behavior she's a sinner she doesn't belong here making sure people are doing things right jesus is not saying the right things out in the culture perhaps in our modern context they would be the people evaluating the quality of the of the sunday morning services not that that goes on anymore right Is the music appropriate? Is it what I like? Is it proper? Is the preaching exactly correct? They would have opinions and they would be willing to voice those opinions in order to make sure things were done in this proper, controlled, traditional way. They would object. I mean, they would object to overly done worship. Especially. Especially if it were by a known sinner in the community. I think about that. The Pharisee. And I'm drawn over to Hebrews, the 10th chapter. Where it says this, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, God's presence. We have confidence to enter the holy place by what? By your moral, good, righteous behavior? By the shed blood of the risen Christ. By a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is the His flesh, the giving of His flesh, His own body as the redemption. What gives us the right? What gives us the confidence to be in the holy place? The the very room of God. The presence of His almighty presence. What gives us that access? It's the blood of Jesus. He qualifies us. Oh, what a gracious reminder that it's all about Him, right? <laughs> what a gracious reminder it's not about us. And I don't care how mature in Christ we get. I don't care how long we've been walking with Him. I don't care how many Bible studies we've been to. Your only qualification has ever been and ever will be to enter into the presence of God, the shed blood of Jesus Christ for you on the cross. Period. I hope we can understand and grasp the centrality of personal humility in worship. I, I have nothing to offer except my response of gratitude and appreciation and praise for who you are and what you've done in me. Watchman Nee writes this he says different persons have different conditions and situations he's talking spiritually here some may have shortcomings others have some sins some may have fallen seriously others may be a bit better if coming to god is based on a person's spiritual condition how can we worship god together in oneness none of our hands are clean they're all mud stained and defiled But by the blood, we can come boldly to God to worship Him. He says, without the blood, no one can worship, and there is no worship. The Lord's blood is effective not only on earth, but in heaven as well. Not only was it effective on the cross, but it's effective on the throne as well. So that we can now come to the Holy of Holies to worship God. It's the moment of the death of Christ when the veil, what? was torn and in access into the very presence of who He is was given to us. It's all about Him. How could I complain or evaluate or even, even have an opinion? <laughs> I often think about this. Can you imagine being in heaven where the worship of Jesus, the Lamb of God, is just continuous, it's just going on all the time? I mean, we have snippets of this in Scripture, Isaiah 6, Revelation 4, and Revelation 5. Can you imagine walking into the very throne room of all that's going on in celebration of the Lamb of God and bringing a complaint? It just seems a little preposterous, doesn't it? I mean, can you imagine approaching the Father and saying something like, uh, you know these cherubims and these seraphims? They keep saying the same thing. Over and over and over. It is so repetitious here. Holy, holy, holy. As the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. I get it. It says. (laughs) She makes me cry. It says that they shout it back and forth. And every expression of it is just fresh and new. And they couldn't even fathom not saying it. Worship is this lifestyle of a constant celebration of who He is. And that we are confident, we're bold, we're worthy to participate. Because of the blood shed for my sin. It says one of the things we learned about worship from the woman is that she was not going to be denied. I mean, you have to understand the cultural context a bit. Women, first of all, wouldn't have been in that meeting. They wouldn't have been allowed to enter and she had to uh, cross a lot of cultural norms in order to get there. Not only that, she was a woman of ill repute, most likely a prostitute. We don't know that for certain, but most likely that would have been the label given to her if she were. But she was not going to be denied. She was going to worship at his feet. There may be consequences. There might be something that was going to happen to her for crashing this party the way she did, but she just didn't care. You obviously get that from the story. She longed for, thirsted for, yearned for the presence of the living God and the person of Christ. Nothing was going to stop her. And I have to think, do we thirst for him? Do we yearn for him? Or do I have, do I have attitudes similar to the way the Pharisee was perceiving the situation? I mean, what if someone came into our church who was an obvious socially unacceptable sinner? Is that okay for socially unacceptable sinners to come into our church, by the way? For we all have been there. What if they came in and they just fell before us and just says, I just need Jesus, I just need Jesus. Do you think that we could have something to learn from them? The woman's focus was so singular. It was only Jesus. The woman's focus was only Jesus. When you're thirsty, really thirsty, you only want water. This woman, she was so hungry for God and so hungry for the life of Christ. She just had a laser focus. He had so gripped her life that she wasn't concerned with what others thought. She wasn't concerned about protecting her reputation. She wasn't concerned about the judgment that may be cast upon her. She just had to have him. Okay, can I move in a little bit closer to you? Can I step on your toes maybe? Push your buttons? I mean, what choice you got, right? Okay. I think one of the things that we have to contend with in our culture today, in our cultural setting, is that um, in many ways we're just... We just don't get passionate about a lot of things or much of anything. It could be the fact that we've had affluence for so long or we've been taught this American way of self-sufficiency or maybe we've just grown kind of tired and worn out and complacent. And uh... But there's just a lot of people today who are unenthused about their journey. It's not just worship and spiritual things either. I mean, it's, it just pours out into their work. How many people are just passionate about their work and work with great focus and passion? How many parents are raising kids with great passion or focus? Or, or how many of us are waiting for our next vacation? Or when can these kids go back to school? <laughs> Man. And instead of drawing close to Christ in corporate worship, or to or to walk in Christian community with other believers, or to join with other believers and serve our community. Eh. I'd kind of rather go to the movies, or sleep in, or, or watch the next football game. Okay, I know that was a bridge too far, okay? <laughs> I'll back that up, but... You know, I often think of that C.S. Lewis quote, say it often, but it's so true of our current cultural tr- situation. His quote from Mere Christianity says this We are far too easily pleased. You see what he's saying, right? We settle for so little. Ah, God never works that much in my life, but I've kind of grown used to it. It's okay. I got a nice house, got a nice job, and we miss out on all of this glory blessing where we just cry at his feet and kiss and kiss and kiss and the woman she honored Jesus, she wasn't going to let him be treated as ordinary or as a peer of the Pharisee she was going to. Make sure that He was anointed. That He was kissed. That His feet were washed. He was going to be honored. She gave what she had. We know that a woman's hair in this New Testament context is her glory. It's the most priceless thing. And she used it as her rag to wipe His feet. This perfume most likely was very expensive. It was extravagant in her gift to him. She wouldn't stop kissing his feet, Jesus says, She got it, right? The Pharisee? He didn't get it. He wasn't interested in worshiping this peer of his. He was interested in engaging in some scholarly debate and prove that he was a fraud or dismantle his arguments. And it was more important for the Pharisee to be right and proper than it was to acknowledge the reality that God was in the midst. Let me just say it Pride is an ugly, ugly thing. Do you agree with that? Pride is an ugly, ugly thing. Pride is a barrier that keeps us from understanding and experiencing the fullness of who He is in our life, it screams for recognition. It wants to be heard. It wants to prove. It wants to control. It is a blinder to the truth. I mean, one of the most astonishing things in all of this story is how it ends. Because he turns to the Pharisee and he says to the woman, he says, Your sins are forgiven. The lavish mercy and grace of God just poured out through the life of Christ into her. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen that? My word, all of this grace and mercy from the throne of heaven flowing into her life. And what is the response over here of the blinded, prideful Pharisees? Who does he think he is? Who does he think he is? Who is this man who even forgives sins? We all know that's not happening. That's not true. It's all about theology for them. It's all about Tradition. It's not what we do here. Women come in here and do this sort of thing. Well, do people still do this sort of thing today? I know, not here. You may have been to other churches at some time. Just kidding. That's not the way we worship here. I don't think that's the way we ought to worship. We have traditions to uphold, right? Okay? It's not about that. And lastly, the woman was extravagant in her worship. Perfume. Kissing. Just breaking in, crashing the party where she wasn't invited. Really? Really? And I ask myself the question, what would be extravagant worship to me? I mean, for her, it was this gift of expensive perfume, no doubt. Giving is worship, you know, right? Giving is is an act of worship. We give our lives, we give our resources, we give our time. Giving is this sacrificial life before him that I'm yours. Try extravagant giving. It'll change your heart. If you want to be measured and controlled and in control of all the, the things and you want to just be the boss of all of that, uh no. Pharisee. Extravagant, poured out, broken, and just the woman. Release control. Here's everything, Lord. I hold back nothing. My most priceless possession, my future, my career, it's it's in your hands. Break me from those those wants for things other than you. It's just My prayer is that as a church, we become more and more extravagant in our worship, more singularly focused on the presence of Almighty God among us. We won't be denied it. We must have him. We must have him. Which am I most like? Which are you most like? The woman or the Pharisee? Father God... I think every one of us needs to grapple with what you're saying to us. I mean, if we can get so at home with our Phariseeism that it's just well, it's just the way it is, and uh, and yet your word continually breaks in and disrupts the party and disrupts the norms and says, "No, come back." Come back home that we may celebrate the return of the prodigal. Quit the, all the moralistic, religious justification. Just drop it. Admit who you really are. Come into the party of my grace that I may be able to love you, that I may be able to nourish you. Father, as a, as, as pastor here, I, I come to you as That you would, in our church, bring about this this holy need that we have. This embracing of this need for the very presence and essence of Jesus Christ through your Spirit in us. That we would not get sidetracked by this activity or this activity. But in the midst of all of these activities, there is this presence of Almighty God that is nourishing our souls, that is witnessing the gospel through us, that is loving people. And when we even get an ounce of merit in our spirit or justification or feel like we deserve or we are owed, oh, Father, expose us, expose us, expose us. We don't want that. We know that our merit is found in the blood Of Jesus Christ and that alone. So, Father, work this in us as a body. We echo the words of of Paul in the scripture where he says, When I am weak, then I am strong. We embrace our weakness, our inability. And we claim the shed blood of Christ as the provision of the life of Christ in us. Thank you, Father.